Welcome to Taboo and Murder. Today, we are going to focus on public executions. What is a public execution? A public execution is a form of capital punishment which members of the general public may voluntarily attend. This definition excludes the presence of a small number of witnesses randomly selected to assure executive accountability. Basically, that means today we still often have the presence of a small number of witnesses to assure executive accountability, but historically, public executions were an outing. That's right, pack a picnic grab a blanket, and get ready for a show. Gross. Why? Why did people demand public executions? Well, this was covered in the definition, but it bears repeating. Some wanted to see justice carried out. Many others were fueled by schadenfreude. As a note, lynching, that's another topic entirely, and we will have an episode on it of its own. Who still practices public executions? Well, Iran, Saudi Arabia, North Korea and Somalia Somalia all report that public executions still take place today. It's reported unofficially that public executions have been carried out in Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Iraq. While others would argue these are honor killings, we absolutely will be covering honor killings in another episode. When did public executions become taboo? Well, History is often told from a Western perspective, so that's what I was mainly able to research. That said, public execution policy taboo varies widely between different religions, societies, governments, and the tone the media takes, or is able to take in certain countries where free speech isn't protected. But to give a brief yet thorough overview of why executions became taboo, I've compiled a timeline. Public executions first appeared in law in Babylon in the 18th century BC. Common forms of public execution during this time included crucifixion, drowning, beating to death, burning alive, and impalement. By the 10th century in Britain, hanging was the most popular method used. It was cheap, it was easy, well, when it wasn't botched, and it accommodated a large crowd. In the 11th century, William the Conqueror would not allow executions, except in times of war. That wouldn't last long, though. By the 16th century, Henry VIII had over 72,000 people executed under his rule. Henry was fond of boiling, burning at the stake, hanging, beheading, drawing, and quartering. Capital offenses punishable by death under Henry VIII were expanded to include the offenses of marrying a Jew, not confessing to a crime, and treason. Britain influenced the U.S. to use the death penalty. The first public execution in America took place in 1608 in Jamestown. Captain George Kendall was executed for being a spy for Spain. Saying, hold my beer, Britain, Virginia Governor Sir Thomas Dale enacted the Divine Moral and uh, Marital Laws, which expanded the list of capital games punishable by public execution to also include offenses such as stealing grapes, killing chickens, or trading with Native Americans. In colonial America, laws varied greatly. Massachusetts Bay Colony held its first public execution in 1630. New York, not to be outdone, instituted the Duke's Laws of 1665. This further expanded crimes punishable by public execution to also include offenses for striking one's mother or father or denying the true God. 
1767, the essay on crimes and punishment by Caesar Beccaria made strong arguments against the state taking a life. This essay had a strong impact on the world. As a direct result, both Austria and Tuscany abolished public executions and the death penalty. Around the same time in the United States, Thomas Jefferson introduced a bill to revise Virginia's capital punishments to be revised only for cases of murder and treason, but it was defeated by one vote. In 1794, Pennsylvania became the first state to introduce degrees of murder based on culpability, limiting capital punishment to first-degree murder. In 1834, Pennsylvania became the first state to move executions away from the public eye and into the correctional facilities. In 1846, Michigan became the first state to abolish the death penalty for all crimes, excluding treason. Later, Rhode Island and Wisconsin abolished the death penalty entirely. By 1900, the countries including Venezuela, Venezuela, Portugal, the Netherlands, Costa Rica, Brazil, and Ecuador all abolished capital punishment. And while several states followed suit and abolished capital punishment, some states made more criminal capital offenses, especially offenses committed by slaves. In 1838, the enactment of the discretionary death penalty was introduced as a more palatable option for abolitionists. In 1963, the last of the mandatory death sentences were abolished. 1963. Now, life in prison is always an alternative when seeking capital punishment. A couple of shocking facts to round out this fun, not at all depressing topic. The last public execution held in the United States was carried out in Owensboro, Kentucky in 1936. 1936! There are some people that are still alive that were born in 1936. Over 20,000 people watched as Rainy Bitha, Bitha, I think I have an autocorrect there, Um, but Rainy was hanged after his conviction for the rape and murder of a 70-year-old woman. Those in power, those that witnessed 20,000 angry people cheer for death, well, the authorities got a little spooked to say the least, and they moved the party indoors. And that's where we'll pick up with the death penalty episode at a later date. One other fact. In 2018, the state of Ohio released a design for a machine that twists a person's head from their body. I'll link to the video on Twitter and Instagram. I will likely reference this video again when we cover the death penalty. The narration is hilarious, in the gallows style of hilarious. Soothing white noise and putting prisoners on a cushioned seat before its metallic talons dig into their necks and painlessly wrench their heads off. Okay. From 1725 to 1775, executions were held at Tyburn about six times a year. It was reported that one such execution was witnessed by over 100,000 people. Children would sit atop their dad's shoulders for a better view. The commingling of religion, the media, the government, and society's views on race, gender, and values all contribute to the ebb and flow of the popularity of public executions over millennia. It all feels so archaic, doesn't it? But is it? Thank you for listening to Taboo and Murder. Please subscribe and rate us on iTunes. And as always, please let us know what taboo you'd like us to cover. The easiest way to find us is on Twitter at SMTaboo. See our Twitter feed for sources. 
Also, on a scale of 1 to 10, how taboo do you find public execution? Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Ashley, the host of Taboo and Murder. Today we will continue with public executions. In the mini-episode, we go over a timeline of public executions to understand how government, economic factors, and religion all shaped the trajectory of public executions. In the Western world, anyway. And stealing a quote from one of my favorite podcasts, Queens, history is a bag of dicks. In this case, as in many, history was written by white dudes from a white dude perspective, so my access to English text on non-Western public executions is essentially non-existent. What we have in abundance, stories and observations of public executions from some very notable figures from history. I found an amazing source that I'll post on Twitter if you want to research further. But to look at how society was often shaped by public executions, I've selected 10 excerpts. Also, my first of many corrections, I'm sure, the Ohio machine that pulls a person's head off, that wasn't a real thing. I punked myself. But still watch it. It feels just Handmaid's Tale enough to be real in our future. Would the machine create jobs? I don't think so. That may be a deal breaker. Anyway, into some heavy accounts of public executions. An account by Italian poet Dante Alighieri, whom lived from 1265 to 1321. I not only saw convicted criminals burned alive, but also witnessed the executions of assassins who were buried headfirst in the ground with only their legs protruding. This dreadful spectacle inspired Dante's portrayal of a similar fate for the unrepentant sinners of his inferno, whose legs stick out of holes in a rock. In the poem, he bends to talk to one of them, as if he were a priest hearing the last words of a condemned man, who prolongs his confession to postpone the terrible moment when the earth is shoveled in and smothers him. So, Dante's Inferno heavily influenced by public executions. Good to know. In all seriousness, though, why didn't Mr. Bernhard teach me that in high school English? I would have been way more interested in that book, but I digress. On to the accounts of English diarist Samuel Pepys. It's spelled P-E-P-Y-S, but I checked, and it's pronounced Pepys. Anyway, he lived from 1633 to 1704. Peeps among a crowd of 12 to 14,000 spectators watched the 1664 hanging of convicted burglar James Turner. To better observe the execution, Peeps paid a shilling to stand on a cartwheel, thus spending an hour in great pain, while Turner delayed the inevitable with long discourses and prayers, hoping for a reprieve that didn't come. After the hanging, Peeps returned home all in a sweat to dine alone before eating a second dinner with friends at the Old James Tavern. Two dinners? What the heck? Anyway, this wasn't the first execution Peeps had witnessed. On October 13, 1660, he'd attended Major General Harrison's execution. Not only was the regicide to be hanged, but Harrison had also been sentenced to be drawn that is, to have his abdomen cut open and his entrails withdrawn, and quartered, which is to be beheaded and have his body cut into four pieces. After Harrison's body was cut down, his head and heart were shown to the people, who responded with great shouts of joy. 
I just conjure up Game of Thrones, heads on spikes, that kind of thing. In 1649, Pepys added, he'd had the opportunity to witness the beheading of King Charles at Whitehall, the main residence of British, British monarchs at the time, so he could now boast of having seen the first blood shed in revenge for the blood of the king at Charing Cross. Way to humble brag, peeps. You were so ground level for the blood of the king at Charing Cross. Apparently, securing hipster cred was a thing in the 17th century, too. Next, a man all about that schadenfreude, James Boswell. He was a public execution groupie. Scottish lawyer and biographer James Boswell, 1740 to 1795 seems to have been obsessed with witnessing public executions. He attended several. One was that of William Harris, a client sentenced to death for forgery. On the eve of Harris's execution, Boswell visited him. The next day, May 30th, 1770, he attended the condemned man's execution, which Boswell wrote left him much shocked and still gloomy. The next year, on September 25th, Boswell apparently witnessed the execution of convicted robber William Pickford, writing on October 20th, 1771 to his friend John Johnston that he'd last seen Pickford at the foot of the gallows. On March 24th, 1773, after attending some of the trial of Alexander Madison and John Miller, who were convicted of stealing sheep, Boswell attended their hangings. They were executed alongside John Watson, who'd been sentenced to death for breaking into a house. Boswell found the effect diminished as each one went. Boswell's defense of another client, Margaret Adams, was unsuccessful. She and her younger sister, Agnes, were being tried for murder, and Boswell convinced the court that the siblings should be tried separately. Agnes was later reprieved, but Boswell's brief note considering his whereabouts on March 2nd, 1774 at M.A.'s execution indicates his client wasn't as fortunate. On September 21st, 1774, Boswell added again, witnessed the execution of sheep thief John Reed. Then Boswell attended the April 19th, 1779 execution of James Hackman, who had been sentenced to death for murdering Martha Ray. The execution, execution occasioned both Boswell's account of the trial and a letter of reflection on Hackman's fate for the St. James Chronicle. Next, Boswell attended a series of mass executions, ramping it up. On June 23, 1784, he observed the shocking sight of 15 men executed before Newgate, before attending the executions of 19 more men at the same prison a year later. On July 1st, 1785, he saw 10 more men die at Newgate. Five days later, accompanied by Sir Joshua Reynolds, Boswell went to see Edmund Burke's former servant, Peter Shaw, executed for arson, alongside four other condemned men, writing about the affair for the public advertiser. The same year, on August 16th and 17th, he watched seven men and a woman, including siblings Elizabeth and Martin Taylor, executed for burglary, 
interviewing some of the condemned men beforehand and publishing an article concerning the event in the public advertiser. He also interviewed murderers Thomas Masters and Antonio Marini on April 19, 1790, before their executions. You can certainly look them up. I didn't include them. Boswell confessed he had never absent he was never absent from a public execution explaining that his initial shock and feelings of pity and terror gradually gave way to great composure he was motivated to witness executions he said because of his great curiosity about death i think boswell and andre chicatello would have gotten along swimmingly hard to you know go back and like diagnose but he seemed like outside of taboo he seemed like a little creep anyway because the fucking patriarchy always wants to be up in our uteri we have this next story on january 14th 1772 in frankfurt germany Susanna marguerite brandt 25 was beheaded she'd been drugged and raped and when she delivered the resulting infant she murdered it claiming she'd been under the influence of a demonic power German dramatist Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, 1749-1832, may have witnessed her execution. If so, the event may have inspired Gretchen, the character who commits infanticide in his two-part tragedy, Faust. Several parallels between Gretchen and Brandt suggest the former might have inspired the latter. Brandt claimed the rapist had spiked her wine. Gretchen poisoned her mother with wine. Both Brant and Gretchen blamed their actions on the devil, and both had a brother in the army. Brant's sister reassured her that she hadn't been the first woman ever to have been seduced. And Gretchen was told the same thing, using the same words Brant's sisters used to console her. You are not the first. Okay, being fucking raped is not being seduced. Again, the patriarchy. Burn it to the ground. It also shouldn't come as any surprise that nearly all accounts are by men. Again, history is a bag of dicks. Love you, queens. Women were not, and some would say, are still not represented accurately in history. So, we really can't know if women had the same enthusiasm for public executions. But, to be sure, women certainly attended. The English Romantic poet Lord Byron, 1788-1824, described a progression of emotion similar to that which Boswell experienced. While he was visiting Rome, Byron attended the beheadings of three condemned men. The first, he wrote, turned me quite hot and thirsty and made me shake so that I could hardly hold the opera glass. The second and third, which show how dreadfully soon things grow indifferent, I am ashamed to say had no effect on me as a terror. It really only takes three beheadings for a human to become desensitized? Wow. In his autobiography, Danish fairy tale author Hans Christian Andersen, 1805 to 1875, recounts having witnessed the public execution of a man in 1823 after which a father collected a cup of the dead man's blood to give his epileptic offspring to drink, hoping the vital fluid would cure the child. It appears the father's belief was rooted in superstitions concerning the curative effect of blood. 
Since ancient days, it was believed that blood could restore health. It was thought that the blood of people who died violently or were executed could cure all manner of sicknesses and diseases because blood, the elixir of life, contained soul essence, imbuing those who drank it with energy and strength. I feel like we're a couple years away from that. Find it at wholefoods.com. Kidding. Sorry, Whole Foods. Not an advertiser. The British novelist William Makepeace Thackeray, 1811-1863, tells how Dash, whom he described as one of the most eminent wits in London, had kept those who planned to attend the execution of Francois Cavoussier in stitches during their wait the night before at a club, joking about the coming event. Thackeray admitted he and his companions found murder a great inspirer of jokes. Gallows humor. After hours of waiting, Cavusier bore his punishment like a man. His arms were tied in front of him. His open he opened his hands in a helpless kind of way and clasped them once or twice together. He turned his head here and there and looked about him for an instant with a wild, imploring look. His mouth was contracted in a sort of a pitiful smile. He went and placed himself under the beam. When a nightcap was pulled over the condemned man's face and head, Thackeray shut his eyes, and the trapdoor was sprung. Cavoussier dropping to the end of his rope, Thackeray was haunted by the execution. Fourteen days later, he continued to see the man's face continually before his eyes. One fun tidbit I picked up in my research, but I didn't put it in anywhere— In Europe, the position of executioner was passed down to family members like any other line of succession in the monarchy. So a person could be born to kill. These people were considered to be taboo. One didn't dare eat with them or even brush past them. It was believed that touching the executioner would bring death and misfortune to that person and their family. They must have had a real chill upbringing just waiting to come of age to kill people. I can't imagine. Now, an account by what the last podcast on the left guys would say a heavy hitter. On November 13th, 1849, English novelist Charles Dickens, 1812 to 1870, attended the public execution of Frederick and Maria Manning. The husband and wife were executed at the horsemonger lane for the murder of their friend, whose body then they buried beneath the kitchen floor. Their motive in murdering the man was robbery. They'd valued their victim's money more than they'd valued his life. A husband and wife hadn't been executed together for 150 years, and the occasion was advertised as the hanging of the century. Part of a crowd of 30,000 witnesses, Dickens watched the hanging from the comfort of an upstairs apartment he'd rented near the prison. Despite his own presence at the execution, the author denounced the public spectacle in a scathing letter to the Times newspaper, condemning the carnival-like air of the affair. In his letter, Dickens claimed he'd attended the execution not to see the couple hanged, but to observe the crowd, which he described in some detail as thieves, low prostitutes, ruffians, and vagabonds of every kind, whose foul behavior in jeering at the condemned and exhibiting shameless and brutal mirth 
made him ashamed to be among their numbers. Despite his professed revulsion by such spectacles, this wasn't the first time Dickens had attended a public execution. On July 6, 1840, the novelist had been part of the crowd observing the execution of Cavusier at Newgate Prison in London, England, attending the affair with Thackeray and Dash. The condemned man had been found guilty for having cut Lord William Russell's throat as Russell lay in bed. Dickens wrote of his disgust for the odious crowd, which exhibited no sorrow, no sultry terror, no abhorrence, no seriousness, showing instead debauchery, levity, drunkenness, and flaunting vice in 50 other shapes. I feel like he needs to chill a little bit. Now, Mark Twain. American novelist and humorist Mark Twain, 1835 to 1910, was haunted by his memory of the hanging he'd attended in Nevada during the latter half of the 19th century. In recounting the experience for a Chicago newspaper, he wrote, I can see that straight stiff corpse hanging there yet with its black pillowcased head turning rigidly to one side and the purple streaks creeping through the hands and driving the fleshy hue of life before them. Ugh. Twain was writing of the April 28, 1968 execution of Frenchman John Millian, referred to by Twain as John Melanie. <laughs> That's some shade. <laughs> so John Melanie, uh, who'd been caught selling one of the dresses of his victim, Juliette, oh, Julia Bouliette, whom he'd murdered in January 1867 before ransacking her parlor. An immigrant, Milian or Melanie, spoke little English and was easily convicted of the crime, although he insisted he was innocent right up to the moment the trapdoor was sprung. Twain described the hanging in a letter he sent from Virginia City, which was published in the Chicago Republican on May 31, 1868. The condemned man went courageously to his death, Twain wrote. It was only at the end of the rope that a dreadful shiver started at his shoulders, violently convulsed the whole body all the way down, and died away with a tense drawing of the toes inward like a doubled fist until all was over. Woof. English novelist Tom Hardy, not the panty dropper Tom Hardy, this guy lived from 1840 to 1928. He was just 16 years old when he witnessed a hanging. He climbed a tree near the gallows to gain a good vantage point. Elizabeth Martha Brown, 45, had been convicted of murdering her husband. And now outside the Dorchester goal at goal goal is what is it, Gallo? I don't know what that word is supposed to be out of correct. Anyway, just outside Dorchester at 9 a.m. on August 9th, 1856, she was being made to pay for the crime with her own life. By the century's end, the town of Dorchester had a population of 9,000, and almost half a century before that year, a crowd numbering between 3,000 and 4,000 people had gathered to witness the spectacle. So a town showed up to watch that woman hang. 
Decades later, Hardy described the condemned woman as showing a fine figure against the sky as she hung in the misty rain, her tight black silk gown emphasizing her shape as she wheeled half around and back. At the end of her rope, it's been suggested that Brown's death may have struck an erotic chord in the teenager, and I'm going to go ahead and say, yup. Um, who may have fantasized by her writhing body in the tight dress and by facial features partially visible through the rain-soaked hood. In any case, the horrific incident so affected Hardy it inspired his famous 1891 novel, Tess of the D'Ubervilles. D'Ubervilles? I'm sure I said that completely wrong. Anyhow, botched Public executions were very common, unfortunately. This helped change public sentiment regarding execution. So the powers that be moved the process into the correctional facilities and out of the public eye. There are some pretty famous botched executions, and I could do an entire episode on those. The most common form to be botched was hanging, oddly enough. How could that be? Use a rope and you're good, right? Well, there are several ways to fuck up a hanging. Not accounting for the weight of the hanged to bend the traditionally, you know, tree branch. Not accounting for the fact that the neck does have more given stretch than we'd like to think it does. If the fall wasn't enough to break the neck, then a man or woman would hang for up to 15 minutes until they expired. Pretty gruesome if your neck just didn't snap, that you'd be lucky if the trapdoor fell on you and your neck snapped, essentially. Oh, this part just sticks with me. In several documented cases of public executions, simple mathematical mistakes resulted in the rope being too long by a couple of inches. Again, the tree branch, whatever it is, keeping the condemned spinning on their toes. Men would then take turns holding the man and or rope taut until he expired. The longest one on record took over an hour. I just, I can't. It makes my skin crawl. Ah, hey, John, uh, can you take the rope? My hand is really starting to cramp, but this guy has got to die. So can you help me out? Jesus Christ. I, I don't know why this one sticks with me so much, but it really creeps, creeps me out. Public executions have been a part of our society since its existence. The last public execution in the United States was in 1936. So since then, what have we done to satiate that bloodlust? It appears we humans have always craved it. Has football taken the place of the old world gladiator? Has the trial by media become the new public execution? Years of coverage and scandalous details, think the West Memphis Three, O.J. Simpson, Casey Anthony, the Golden State Killer. Could these years of coverage by the media satisfy our need for accountability that public execution had previously provided? Or do we just enjoy other people's tragedies? Maybe it's just schadenfreude. Thank you for listening to Taboo and Murder. Please subscribe and rate us on iTunes. And as always, please let us know what taboo you'd like us to cover. The easiest way to find us is on Twitter at SMTaboo. See our Twitter feed for sources. Thank you.